0: The following presentation may not be suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. Vanilla latte on the bar! It's mid-morning on a Friday in Los Angeles, and the cafe up the block is bustling. Stevie Horton's eyes flicker around nervously. I don't think I'll bump into anyone here. But she peeks over her laptop to take another look, just in case. She's huddled in the corner, careful not to show her screen to any unsuspecting eyes. Yet, she still can't shake the feeling that she's being watched. She went to the cafe this morning because she didn't want her boyfriend to come home and find her huddled over her laptop ordering drugs. That happened once before, and the outcome wasn't pretty. I know it looks bad, but it's not like I'm some kind of junkie with a needle just sticking out of my arm. Stevie has been killing herself working two jobs to keep a roof over her and her out-of-work actor boyfriend's head. A few months ago, a girl from Stevie's office mentioned this website that was like the Amazon.com of drugs. You could order whatever you wanted anonymously and get it shipped right to your door. She thought it was too good to be true, like anyone else would. But then she saw an article about it online, and her mild interest became wicked curiosity. Stevie just needed something for energy and pep since she hardly slept. Coffee just wasn't getting it done. So, she recently graduated to something a little stronger. Cocaine. Accessing this site was a little different from most sites on the internet. But after reading a few articles, Stevie was finally ready to give it a shot. That was three months ago. Now at the cafe in Los Angeles, she hopped onto the Tor browser like a certified pro and connected to the network. Stevie didn't know exactly what Tor did, but it made her anonymous and invisible online. She had the web address already memorized. She'd probably access this website a hundred times by now. Sometimes she would spend virtually all day on the site chatting on message boards with other anonymous users. But not today. Today, she needed to re-up her medicine. She ended the web address with .onion, hit the enter button, and a white page loaded with a bright green font saying, Welcome to the Silk Road. Easy breezy, lemon squeezy. The list of drugs was all on the left-hand side of the screen, organized by category. Uppers, downers, weed, painkillers, and much more. Stevie clicked on uppers. Her eyes scanned the cafe crowd again, making sure she didn't see anyone she knew. She scrolled down to the heading titled Cocaine and hit Enter. In an instant, there was a list of 25 different sellers, all peddling the same thing, pure white happy dust. The last time she bought from a dealer who sold under the code name CY, but the batch they sent was too weak. She needed something more potent. She wasn't a drug addict, she just needed to get through her day, maybe have a little more fun when she hits the bars at night with the girls. Just like Amazon, all sellers had ratings and customers could leave reviews, Never with their real names, of course. Always under a handle. Stevie's handle for the site? Raven. She liked Poe. She scrolled through a few more reviews before deciding to buy from someone named C-Punk. All of his reviews were great, and people were saying his shit was strong. Just what Stevie was looking for. Her laptop dinged once the Bitcoin transferred into her account, and she promptly placed an order for an eight ball. A confirmation number was saved to her profile, and now all she would have to do is wait. Her meds would be on her front porch in three to five business days, and Stevie would be back in business. By the time that white horse arrived on her doorstep a few days later, Stevie was restless, exhausted. Alone at the apartment, she ravenously tore open the package and carved herself a fat line and snorted it then, she did it again. And again. Oh, this shit was good. By now, she'd been out of coke for a few days. She needed to feel like herself again. And she didn't care if her boyfriend walked in or if her mom suddenly called because it was finally here. Her body was buzzing. She felt euphoric. She wanted to dance. Just one more line and I'm good to go. Stevie inhaled one more sweet, sweet line and fell back onto the bed. But before her body hit the mattress, Stevie was already dead. On this episode, buying drugs on the internet, the birth of the dread Pirate Roberts, and the notorious Silk Road. I'm Keith Corneluk, and this is Modem Mischief. You're listening to Modem Mischief. In this series, we'll explore the darkest reaches of the internet, We'll show you places you won't find on Google, what goes on down there, and some of the personalities involved. This is part one of The Silk Road. It was an evening in August 2013, when Ross Albrecht peered out of his tightly closed blinds from his third floor studio apartment and looked down at the busy street. He swore someone had followed him home from the bar around the corner, but everything looked like it usually did. People were commuting home from work, hopping on and off the bus. A group of teenagers were smoking on the corner. Everything was as it usually was. Nothing to be afraid of. But Ross had been feeling on edge and jumpy lately. He was suspicious of everyone. On the surface, Ross was a skinny recluse. But in a dark corner of the web, unreachable by the average internet user, Ross was a drug kingpin. People were lying to him, stealing from him, hunting him as he lived and breathed. One tiny mistake or misstep, and everything he had worked so hard for would vanish. With those thoughts bouncing around his brain, his anxiety was beginning to mound. He could feel himself losing his mind, losing himself. Despite having millions of fans online and millions of dollars in his Bitcoin wallet, he'd never felt more alone. That's because, in the real world, Ross mainly was alone. No one could know who he was, who he really was, or what he did for a living. Letting that slip would mean putting himself in a ton of danger, and probably jail. So, it was easier for him to keep to himself. Ross wasn't always so paranoid. He used to be carefree. Hell, he was even an Eagle Scout. While completing his master's degree at Penn State, Ross started smoking weed and doing mushrooms. Being high made him feel more interesting, relaxed, funnier, Mushrooms helped him get over his depression, and soon he craved going out into the woods to trip, naked and surrounded by nature. At the mention of politics or the war on drugs, Ross became the chattiest person in the room, unable to keep from talking over everyone about his libertarian views. After graduating, he intended to marry his college girlfriend, get a good job, raise a family. But as he was down on one knee proposing to his then-girlfriend, she casually admitted that she'd cheated on him repeatedly. If his love life sucked, so did his job prospects. He tried day trading, being a landlord, and started a video game company. But he failed at all of it. I might be a loser now, but I refuse to stay that way. He wanted to be an entrepreneur, like his dad, so he decided to start his own business. But what kind of business could he start? Well, he liked physics, debating, libertarianism. None of those were really businesses, though. What was something he was passionate about? Well, besides drugs and libertarianism, nothing. Ross would love to work with drugs, though. But he didn't have the credentials, and he wasn't going to spend another 10 years at school getting them. He tried to let the idea go, but he just kept coming back to drugs. Manic, Ross stayed up for days on end, planning and growing the idea taking shape in his head an online drug marketplace. He'd spent the last two years at Penn sharpening his libertarian views and was passionate about combating the war on drugs. But Ross's beliefs didn't seem to have a place in polite society. Incredibly brainy, but not super tech savvy, Ross began hitting message boards to learn about and research possible platforms for this marketplace. The next few months flew by, with Ross hardly leaving his room. Computer monitors replaced his childhood trophies, and takeout containers began stacking up in corners of his bedroom. Ross's vision became cemented in his mind, and before long, he knew exactly what he wanted. He was ready to start building. With that, Ross posted a Help Wanted ad on one of his message boards, and within a week, hired a hacker to help him build the site. The marketplace was designed to be an outpost, where people could buy and sell whatever they wanted. Mostly though, it would be for selling drugs. There would also be message boards where Ross would end up spending much of his time. And of course, porn, because what's a website without porn of some kind? The key was that Ross wanted everything to be anonymous. So Ross had the site set up on the dark web. This section of the internet isn't your average com kind of place. The domain ends in onion and is the part of the internet that isn't accessible by search engines like Google. The site was run through a special network called Tor that hides users' information by encrypting it and then bouncing the signal all over the world. To Ross, the site was a work of art. Sure, some people would call the white page and green lettering bland, but Ross called it crisp. Once users created their anonymous profiles and picked their handles, they were free to explore the site. On the left-hand side of the screen, there were lists of different drugs. Cannabis, disassociatives, uppers, and downers, to name a few. Clicking on a category would list all the sellers, pictures of their products, and reviews. Past buyers would be able to leave ratings, and potential buyers could pose questions, all designed to make the site transparent despite its anonymity. Ross was in love with his creation, but he still had one problem, payment. Paying with a credit card or bank account meant the police could link drug sales directly to customers' names and addresses, even though the site itself was secure. Ross needed the site to be completely 100% anonymous, all the way down to the financial transaction. It was the only way people would risk buying anything from the site, and without it, there would be no business. It's not like customers could pay in cash. He needed something both anonymous and encrypted so users wouldn't have to worry about getting busted by the cops, but nothing that sophisticated seemed to exist. Yet. It was a Wednesday afternoon when Ross was seated on the edge of his childhood bed. An announcement popped up on an underground site that proclaimed the arrival of something called Bitcoin. A quick search about Bitcoin, and Ross found out that it's an anonymous cryptocurrency unregulated by the government and untraceable by law enforcement. Jackpot. It didn't take Ross long to get his site to accept Bitcoin as its primary form of payment. And by the end of 2010, It was ready for public. What would he call it? This was his brainchild, after all. He thought for a moment about what he wanted the site to be. Like the original trade routes coming out of Asia, his marketplace would allow users to trade drugs and other goods and open up people to new beliefs. He decided to name his creation in honor of the cultural pipeline that allowed Asia to grow into an economic powerhouse that changed the world. He wanted his site to have the same reach and cultural impact. Ross typed, The Silk Road into the empty space at the top of the site and hit publish. Now, he was ready. The Silk Road was officially live at the end of January 2011, but after a month of business, not a single person visited the website. Ross went back to his faithful anonymous message boards once again. This time, he wasn't coming to get anything, he started actively promoting the Silk Road. As visitors to the Silk Road started to climb, so did his excitement. Then, it finally happened. He made his first sale, an eighth of weed. Not much, but a start. Ross needed more. What he needed was a bit of media attention, he reasoned. That would help him get the Silk Road into the stratosphere. Within a week of blasting every online media outlet, only one person responded. Adrian Chen. Chen worked for the online magazine Gawker. If you're unfamiliar with Gawker, it's the site that published the Hulk Hogan sex tape and got sued into oblivion for it. But first, Gawker needed to know, could users really get illegal drugs shipped from the site to their home without having to worry about the police breaking down their door? They tested it out for themselves. The answer was a resounding yes. Gawker posted their exclusive article in June of 2011, complete with over 20 pictures of weed, acid, LSD, coke, fentanyl, Xanax, and oxycodone, all captured from the Silk Road postings. The article dubbed the Silk Road the Amazon.com of drugs, calling it stupidly simple to access. It even gave users a step-by-step guide for accessing the Darknet site. The exclusive interview about the Silk Road and its creator caused whispers among the public. And by the end of June, the Silk Road was gaining 20,000 new users every single day. People came for the drugs, of course, but they stayed because of the culture the site's creator was facilitating. As the site began growing in popularity, Ross stepped away from selling small amounts of weed to simply managing the Silk Road. He responded to every question, customer service request, and kept the code up to date. As Ross became comfortable in his new role as CEO, he began posting on the message boards to encourage interaction among the site's users. Ross and his followers saw the site as the beginning of a new era for human rights and freedom. Ross had been posting under the handle Silk Road Admin, but he felt like it was important to give himself a proper handle with his increasing engagement with the community, one that accurately depicted Ross and marked him as the fearless leader in charge. The name for himself was almost as important as the name for the site itself. Ross was the Silk Road, after all. He was the market, the person, the enterprise, the captain of the ship, and he needed a name that could encompass all of that. He announced his name with a short video clip from the cult classic novel and movie, The Princess Bride. I know who you are. Your cruelty reveals everything. You're the Dread Pirate Roberts. Admit it. With pride. The name he chose was Dread Pirate Roberts. Ross made it very clear how he viewed himself and the image he hoped to project into the world. With the overnight explosion and growth of the site, everyone brought their own opinions about the Silk Road with them. Sellers wanted the site to remain focused on drugs. Libertarians wanted to bring more politics to the site. And a third group called for more anarchy. Well, if you sell drugs and guns, why not also sell kidneys and cadavers? just because the Silk Road was outside the confines of the law didn't mean the site was lawless. All marketplaces had rules and restrictions, and the rules Ross created for the site intended to be the guiding principles. They were 1. Treat others the way you want to be treated. 2. Mind your own business. And 3. Don't do anything to hurt or scam anyone else. Ross also explicitly stated on the homepage that child porn, stolen goods, and assassinations weren't tolerated on the site. The Dread Pirate Roberts didn't want to go down in the history books as a mob boss or a drug dealer. He wanted it clear that he was a legitimate businessman. Like Mark Zuckerberg. You know, a real upstanding guy. By the end of 2011, Ross increased his cut of each transaction from 3% to 12%. It wasn't about the money. But Ross was the one who created the site, and he should get more of the profit. It was just good business. By the end of 2012, the Silk Road was generating 600,000 in Bitcoin per week, and Ross finally found the success that had been eluding him for most of his young life. The Silk Road quickly grew a cult-like following on the darknet. The site, the success, the encryption, the security, all of it. It all seemed too good to be true. And it made Ross feel utterly untouchable. But with most things that seem too good to be true, people eventually find out that they are. And the Silk Road legacy may tell a different story than the one Ross was telling. It was a Friday night at the University of Denver in 2011. A recruit party at one of the fraternity houses was just getting underway. Drinks were flowing and hormones were overflowing. Brian was a senior in the frat, which meant he got to dick around with the other guys and get as hammered as he wanted to all night long. The party was well underway by the time Jake rolled in sometime after midnight. Jake was Brian's little-in-the-frat and best friend. Jake waved a small baggie of powder in front of Brian's face. Are you ready to party for real? Jake asked Brian, who was already substantially fucked up. Oh yeah, totally down! Brian said. Brian had done Coke with Jake a few times before at parties like this one. It made him funnier and even helped him score a few times with the Delta Sigma girls. Upstairs in his room, Jake cut up the powder with a credit card. Have you ever done brown sugar before? He asked Brian. Brown sugar? You mean heroin? Brian shook his head no. The thought of trying that had never ever crossed his mind. You'll like it, trust me, Jake said, rolling up a dollar bill into a tight spiral it's good shit. Jake inhaled through the dollar bill, snorting a small line off his dresser. He handed Brian the rolled-up dollar bill and leaned back onto the bed. Jake drifted off into a haze. Brian had Jake's drugs before, and they were always legit. Besides, Jake wouldn't give him anything he couldn't handle. Brian put the bill into his nose and finished off the second line Jake had made on the dresser, Brian slumped back into the desk chair and looked up at the ceiling with his nostril burning so badly that it made his eyes water. For a panicked moment, Brian worried the burning was never going to go away. And then, he started to giggle. Every cell in his body melted into a pure bliss he'd never felt before. What had he been so upset about? It didn't matter anymore. Nothing did. After Brian sobered up the next day, the weight of what he did began to sink in. Fucking heroin? What had he been thinking? He knew better. People die from heroin every day. He didn't want to end up like Tommy at the end of Train Spotting. What made it all worse, though, was that Brian had liked the drug. A lot. He liked heroin more than weed or coke, and despite being a smart kid, he couldn't fight off the singing in his brain that constantly called for more of it. When he graduated college in 2012, Brian moved across the country for a new job with a good financial firm in Boston. He'd managed to keep his nose clean, literally, since college. But it was a battle he had to fight every day. Then, one freezing January day in 2013, his coworker mentioned the Silk Road in the break room. Have you heard of it? Colin asked, eyes both wide and weary. Brian shook his head. He hadn't. But when he got home that night, a quick Google search told him everything that he needed to know. He could get drugs delivered and it would be anonymous. There was no way he could order drugs from the internet, he told himself. But it's anonymous, he thought. No one has to know. It didn't take long for Brian to cave. Three days later, after a tubing trip with his friends, Brian returned home to find a long envelope in his mailbox. No shit, it actually came. Bry opened the package to find a chocolate bar inside. Opening the candy bar revealed a small baggie of powder that was sealed inside. Excitement jolted his body, and the craving suddenly overwhelmed him. His fingers started shaking as he wiped away bits of chocolate. It looked exactly like he remembered. An innocuous powder. His desire overwhelmed him. He didn't want to stare at it after all. Dumping some out on his dresser counter, Brian vowed that this would be his last time. He would never do H again after this. He grabbed a credit card out of his wallet. He began cutting up the heroin the same way he remembered watching Jake do it. What Brian didn't remember was how much he should be doing. A big line? A small line? How did Jake measure? He started with a small bump through a dollar bill, and his body felt weightless and wispy. Hmm, that was nice. But it wasn't the same pure bliss he'd experienced before. Another small line should do it. Brian dumped out the rest of the baggie. The room was swaying around him with every movement. His limbs were loose and heavy at the same time as he snorted what was left in the bag. A moment later, that familiar euphoria set in. Brian had almost forgotten how fucking great this shit was. The real world melted as he made himself comfortable on his apartment floor, until the corners of his vision started going dark. His heart began racing, and felt like someone had their bare hand wrapped around his heart, squeezing it. No, Brian tried to yell, but he couldn't hear himself. He couldn't move. Each heartbeat felt like it echoed through his body and was moving much faster than it should. He noticed it was getting hard for him to breathe. Were his lungs filling up with air? He couldn't tell anymore. He hardly remembered he had lungs. The darkness clouded more and more of his vision until... Brian died that Friday night around 9.30 p.m. Police examined the body and found that heroin wasn't the only drug in his system. He also had Adderall, a deadly combination. His death was ruled an overdose. Investigators looking into the case quickly ran into dead ends. Brian's death remained unsolved, and his family was left confused and heartbroken at the sudden loss of their only son. Whispers of overdoses like Brian's started to make their way back to the Silk Road. Ross knew that an overdose was possible, but it still annoyed him. People need to know how to handle their shit. The last thing Ross needed was an OD being connected to the Silk Road. Once that happened, it would make its way to the ears of other Silk Road buyers. It's not like Ross was putting the needles in kids' arms and dollar bills in their noses, but it was all about perception. One bad batch of dope, won too many overdoses, and his loyal customers, and let's be honest, fans, would likely jump ship. Ross would be lying if he said he didn't enjoy the attention from his adoring followers, but they wouldn't be buying more drugs if they were dead, and dead was bad for business. Scrolling on the site and contemplating his problem led him to the profile of someone who had been part of the Silk Road for a long time. He went by the handle Dr. X. The doc had been giving out drug advice on the message boards and was answering people's questions about dosing and drug combinations in the forums. What no one on the anonymous site could know was that Dr. X was a board-certified physician out in the real world. Dr. X was spending hours every day answering questions on the Silk Road for other anonymous users. Everything from, how do I inject with a syringe? To, what drugs can I mix this with? Dr. X had all the answers. DPR offered to pay Dr. X for his work on the Silk Road, and Dr. X accepted. The doctor wanted Ross to start sending all drugs sold on the Silk Road to be tested for purity and strength so that buyers can be sure they know exactly what they are buying and that it's safe. But that was a logistical nightmare. For the moment, Ross had convinced himself that he was safe. The overdoses certainly couldn't be traced back to him. Even if the police somehow managed to connect the overdose to the Silk Road. There was nothing that could tie the Silk Road to Ross Albrecht. Just as Ross was convinced that his enterprise was safe, Things were only getting riskier in the real world. On February 18, 2013, the death of 16-year-old Preston hit the news. After a night at his high school dance, Preston and a few friends had gotten a hotel room. The group of kids all took LSD, and Preston jumped from the second-story balcony. He was in a coma with catastrophic head injuries and died the following day. The other kids in attendance that night told the officers where they got the drugs from in no uncertain terms. The Silk Road. Another tragic overdose followed each gruesome case until they piled up on the desks of law enforcement around the world. Small cities in Australia, bigger cities in England, and small towns in rural Texas were all starting to hear about the Silk Road. Local police could do virtually nothing to combat the drugs that were now being dispersed anonymously into their neighborhoods and communities. These smaller police stations had only one hope to end these horrific deaths, the technology of the American government. The most sophisticated and extensive criminal marketplace on the internet, Silk Road. Silk Road is an online illegal drug bazaar where millions of dollars change hands. And its mastermind is a shadowy figure hiding within a secret part of the internet called the Deep Web. From the moment that Gawker posted their exclusive interview in 2011, the Silk Road and DPR began garnering national media attention. The mayor of New York City publicly called on law enforcement to shut the site down as soon as possible. He continued to say that any other response would be grossly neglectful. U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer held a public press conference where he also called for the site to be immediately shut down. Police and politicians around the country heard the governor's rallying cry, and they felt the same way. They were prepared to shut the site down that day. If they could. Law enforcement quickly found out that they couldn't just shut the site down. To shut the site down, they would need access to the site's server, which was hidden and protected by triple encryption. The Darknet website was virtually untouchable and untraceable, leaving the most powerful law enforcement agencies in the world stumped. By 2012, the case hadn't moved an inch. Not one lead, not one suspect. Other than the overdoses attributed to the Silk Road, there wasn't much in the way of evidence. With public pressure mounting, the FBI invited other agencies to start consulting in the case. One of the other agents called in to look at the case was Agent Gary Elford from the Internal Revenue Service. Gary knew he was an outsider in the FBI. The IRS was only called in when the FBI got stumped during big investigations involving lots of cash. But Gary genuinely liked helping out law enforcement. He felt like it was the most meaningful part of his job, a job that Gary was good at. He loved puzzles and was known to follow paper trails and evidence to close his cases methodically. The Silk Road landed on Alfred's desk on a Monday morning, and he immersed himself in it. Alfred was only one guy out of 50 who worked the case, but he felt he could see through all the bullshit that the other agents got caught up in. When Friday rolled around, Alfred couldn't find a way around Tor or into the Darknet site, but he was determined to find a crack in the case. Gary checked his notes and recalled just how random the site seemed to be. It popped up without warning and had taken over the Darknet in a matter of months. But what happened before 2011, Alfred wondered? The clock on his desk hit 5 and he packed it up for the night. But the wheels kept turning. There had to be some mention of the Silk Road somewhere before its big debut, he was sure of it. It was nearing midnight on Saturday and Alfred couldn't sleep. Surrounded by darkness in his living room, he opened his laptop and pulled up a search engine. Alfred figured that something as complicated and high-tech as the Silk Road wouldn't be able to materialize overnight. There had to be some sort of internet trail. Alfred began digging through all the online hacker message boards and computer tech websites to see if there were any leads. For the better part of the weekend, that's where he sat, glued to his screen. The sun began to rise over New York City, but Alfred didn't stop his digging to notice. On a Bitcoin site, no less. Someone anonymously posted on the message boards about a new anonymous drug site and wanted to see what people thought. The user's avatar was Eltoid yes, like the mint. Gary's heart started pounding. And then, nearly 36 hours later, he found it. The post was made during the first week of January in 2011, before Silk Road had gotten any publicity. Gary's gut told him that this was something, this was a clue. How did this user know about the Silk Road before anyone else seemed to? Alfred clicked onto his profile and began scrolling through Altoid's comments and posts until he stumbled onto another clue. Altoid created a post back in 2010 on the same platform asking for the help of an experienced programmer. Altoid left his personal email address on the posting for programmers to use to contact him. The email address? rossalbrecht01 at gmail.com On Monday morning, Alfred rushed into FBI headquarters, the email address written on a torn piece of notebook paper carefully tucked into his suit's inner pocket. He punched floor number 13 and had to fight the urge to skip his way into the cybercrime squad room. Alfred spoke to a special agent at the FBI and told him about the search he did over the weekend and the email address he found. Alfred wasn't sure what sort of reaction he expected to get from the special agent in charge. Maybe excitement? Maybe a hint of approval? This was a lead on their case after all, but when Gary, flushed and winded, explained the evidence he found and showed it to investigators, Alfred was met with skepticism and disapproval. Where'd you find it? The special agent asked, looking Alfred up and down. Alfred felt the excitement drain out of him with that look. He'd only been hired on the case a week ago, and he was already convinced he'd cracked it, but he should have known that the FBI wouldn't take him seriously. Um, well, uh, just Google, sir. Alford gulped. The FBI agent stared dubiously at Alfred like the interloper he was. The agent put the paperwork detailing the lead on top of a big stack of papers. The next second, a young agent entered the room and dropped a fresh stack on top of Alfred's reports. We'll run it down with the others, chief. He then immediately turned his attention back to his desktop computer. Gary had been dismissed. The FBI never got around to running down Alford's lead. And once again, the case against Dread Pirate Roberts was stalled. Meanwhile, DPR had a mutiny on his hands. It was a typical California day, cloudless and sunny. When Ross was at a cafe just around the corner from his place, catching up on the Silk Road message boards, when a chat dinged on his laptop. It was a message from a longtime buyer off the site. The user messaged DPR to let him know that one of his sellers had offered the buyer some off-market items for a small additional fee. Ross tapped the keyboard furiously, unable to believe his luck. What off-market items, DPR messaged back, hitting send with a groan. A moment later, his computer dinged again. The buyer sent Ross a screenshot of the message where his seller was trying to sell off-market passports, guns with scratched-off serial numbers, credit cards, and some bizarre and weirdly specific donkey porn on top of the drugs. Ross felt his face get hot the longer he stared at the computer. He was furious. No, beyond furious. How dare they break his rules? This was his ship. If the sellers couldn't play by the rules, they would have to walk the plank. Ross sat back down and cracked his knuckles before letting his fingers unleash a fury. How dare he pull a fast one on the Dread Pirate Roberts! DPR was the king. He saw everything, heard everything, and could end anyone. He had a one-strike policy. Breaking the rules meant that DPR put his profile in cyber jail. Ross finished by deleting and blocking the user's messages and leaned back in his chair with a sigh. He didn't care whatever bullshit the guy was going to write back. Entertaining him would only be a waste of time. His site was raking in millions of dollars, and the pressure on Ross was mounting. He was keeping up with all the message boards, keeping an eye on his sellers, and continuing to update his code and the site's security measures. He was feeling the pressure to be and do it all. Then, a light bulb went off in Ross's brain. Maybe he could hire some of the other loyal users on the site like he did with Dr. X. Ones that had been there from the start and that he knew were trustworthy. Leaning over his keyboard, he drafted a message to Variety Jones, asking him to come on board as a manager and mentor for the Silk Road. And Varsity Jones excitedly agreed. That was it, Ross thought. All he had to do was delegate some of his work, and then maybe he'd be able to stay on top of his duties. Then he could relax a little bit, maybe finally sleep again. Ross went on to hire a few more people loyal to the Silk Road site. Scout to help moderate the message boards, Enigo to respond to customer service questions or complaints, and Chronic Pain to help dole out some narcotics advice alongside Dr. X, who was working up to eight hours a day responding to inquiries from the site. Their little team was small, but mighty. Ross was finally able to concentrate on what mattered, keeping the Silk Road up, running, and anonymous. Ross was more confident than ever that the Silk Road was here to stay. He'd finally built his empire. That didn't mean, though, that Ross wasn't feeling the tension rise. Law enforcement was starting to circle like sharks. One toe out of line would mean that everything he had built would come crumbling down. He began running daily security checks and updated his code every week. At the end of the day, the success of the Silk Road came down to Ross and Ross alone whether or not he could keep the charade running. For now, he was safe, but the future was yet to be decided. It was a Thursday in January of 2013, when Ross got a message from Anigo, one of his Silk Road employees, that there seemed to be a problem. With the message, Ross felt his stomach start to sink. A problem? Ross asked. What problem? Ross had been spending night and day working on writing and rewriting code that would help the site accommodate more users and add more forums and platforms that were all just as secure as the main site itself. Ross couldn't remember the last time he had a decent night of sleep, wearing his patience down to nothing and rocketing his stress to new heights. His computer dinged when Inigo sent him another message, and his eyes quickly scanned the computer. Ross immediately felt his blood boil and the rage grow in his stomach. Someone had stolen over $300,000 from him. According to Inigo, someone on the Silk Road team had taken the money straight out of the website's private account. Ross had to get up from the computer before he punched a hole through it. He took another hit of a half-smoked joint sitting in an ashtray piled high with roaches. Ross had never been so mad in his entire life. He took another hit from the joint, his clenched fists still shaking. Someone thought they could steal his money? Stealing from him was serious fucking business. He wasn't a small-time kid anymore, and this wasn't a small-time business. What almost angered him more was that the person clearly thought that they could get away with it. As if Ross wouldn't notice, he was only running a multi-million dollar international drug trafficking ring. He found out fucking everything. If they thought they could just steal from the Dread Pirate Roberts, they had another thing coming. Ross always knew that he would have to make hard choices along this journey. He was dealing with drugs and drug dealers after all. Not everyone had loyalty to him. Choices would have to be made for the good of the Silk Road. Choices that would test the loyalty of his employees and followers. Ross sat back down to write his reply. Find out who the fuck took it, Ross typed back to Inigo. We need to make them pay. On the next episode of Modem Mischief, part two and the conclusion of the story of the Silk Road and Dread Pirate Roberts. And that episode is available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the very first episode of Modem Mischief. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app right now so you never miss an episode. Modem Mischief is supported by you, our listeners, and the best way to support us is to tell your friends, your family, even your enemies. And find us on social media at Modem Mischief. Another way to support us is on Patreon or consider a paid subscription on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Find out more at modemmischief.com. In some cases, we can't know exactly what happened, so we use dramatic reenactments. However, our show is heavily researched and sourced. Sources for this episode are available on our website. Thanks for listening. Modem Mischief is brought to you by Mad Dragon Productions and is created, hosted, and produced by me, Keith Corneluck. Additional writing and research for this episode by Lauren Minkoff. Mixed and mastered by David Swope. For more information, visit us online at modemmischief.com.